Welcome to Crime Analysis from Between the Tropics, the Africa series from ASIA, the Association of Crime and Intelligence Analysts, bringing you the crime analysis perspective from the African continent. Association of Crime and Intelligence Analysts, Africa series podcast number four, Criminal Intelligence Analysis Support to Crime Scene Examination. My mother is not a CIA agent, but she's an Italian mother and she'd do anything for her son. Adriana Giannini. Espionage is the carbon monoxide of crime, colorless, odorless, and tasteless. In short, very hard to detect. It can come in the form of espionage against state or non-state entities, the latter usually termed industrial espionage, and it can be carried out by both state and non-state actors. It is also one of the few crimes that can give rise to two separate, distinct, very different, but equally important professional investigations the counterintelligence and criminal investigation. Both these investigations might run simultaneously, can compete against one another, definitely have scope for great overlap, and are usually resolved in markedly different ways. However, our main interest today is what insights investigating such a crime can bring to the practice of criminal intelligence analysis. Of particular importance is what insights can have universal application across to investigation and analytical dissection of other less ambiguous crimes. Key in understanding this would be how criminal intelligence analysis can be applied to the espionage crime scene and what lessons gained from there can be applied to crime scenes of other crimes, such as simple high street retail store thefts. Welcome. Hi all, thanks again for once more being with me and supporting this podcast by listening in. Today we look at how crime and intelligence analytical techniques can impact the investigation of a usually jello-to-the-wall crime, espionage. Given the elusive nature of evidence in espionage, microdots, burst transmissions, steganography, bizarre coded or encrypted numbers broadcasts, successful investigation, evidence gathering and analysis of such a crime requires a high degree of systemization methodology, patience, attention to detail, and tenacity, as will be seen. All these attributes, much as they can have positive results for the investigator and analyst in the murky undergrowth of espionage investigation, they also have great use to the lighter, more mundane retail loss prevention investigation and others. Towards the end of this podcast, we shall briefly look at that. On the way to the end of the podcast, we shall also touch upon the connecting point between our last topic and this, paucity of evidence, investigative interviewing and the shaft technique. Some espionage investigations like the Ho Wen Lee and open and shut Anabi Montes cases, harder cells like the Ugandan Stephen Kisembo case and the textbook character of the John A. Walker case. Hopefully by the end of it all, you'll have a greater interest in understanding not only of how analytical techniques correctly applied to the espionage crime scene can best aid spy catching, but also how those self-same techniques can help curb ORC on Main Street and other such trends. In our earlier podcast, we noted that statistically, availability or collection of sufficient evidence at crime scenes was the exception rather than the norm. We even looked at those situations where, yep, the crime had been committed and the suspect was at hand, but evidence was very light on the ground. 
For such situations, we suggested positive law enforcement resolution could be obtained using investigative interviewing techniques and more specifically, the rapport promotive shaft technique. With its reliance on thorough in-depth research or intelligence, freeform seldom interrupted inquiry, rapport building and appearance of knowing all that there is to know, Shaf aims to extract the deepest, darkest secrets from those who'd ordinarily not divulge much based on their belief in the question already having been informed of that information. Through this means, the theory and also the practice shows that cases can be made based on evidence gathered through interview, where at times other evidence is scant. Sounds familiar? On December 10th, 1999, a respected Asian American nuclear scientist, Dr. Wen Ho Lee, was apprehended by the FBI on suspicion of espionage for the People's Republic of China. Dr. Lee would be held sometimes shackled in insultory confinement as attempts were instituted to make a case of espionage against him. However, despite having undertaken a five-year investigation against him and thrown some heavy financial resources at the case, in the end, Dr. Lee was set free, the case of espionage not made against him, although a much lesser charge was proven. The cause of all this, a lack of evidence. Aside from the lesser charge, Dr. Lee is an innocent man. No sufficient evidence was found against him. Not to cast aspersions on him, Dr. Lee is innocent. However, there are some, both amongst professionals and the public too, who will always have doubts about him. They will say he's as guilty as hell. It's just that we couldn't find the evidence. When Ho Lee underwent a series of interviews and interrogations from different agencies, and some of them not only confrontational, but also employing deception against Lee. Notwithstanding this, Lee was composed, and the end result was his narrative could not be shaken. Damage was done, though, both to Lee, the investigation, the investigators, and their methods. If they had tried to use the shaft technique, there is no saying that a different outcome would have arisen. What is true, though, is that the charges of bias and maltreatment may never have arisen. Two years on and with much better results from the Wenho Lee case, another suspected spy was arrested, Anna B. Monitors. In this instance, evidence was not a problem. Anna's pro-Cuban views were well known. She had been under surveillance. A code sheet was found at her home. Physical surveillance was carried out of her, including noting the date and time she made a call from a particular phone to a particular number, and that such page number had been assigned to the Cuban legation and where she was engaged in only what could amount to espionage tradecraft. Anna B. Montes was tried and convicted of espionage and then sentenced to 25 years imprisonment. Less successful was a Ugandan case involving a clerk from what that country's external security organization, Stephen Kisembe, who despite having been arrested by a joint military police team in, a, in an alleyway in a slum in the company of two diplomats from a neighboring country, and some state secrets at hand, was acquitted of charges of espionage due to insufficient evidence. In this instance, similar to the Anna B. Montes case, there seems to have been an abundance of both direct and circumstantial evidence linking Stephen Kisembo to that espionage crime. Apart from the two cases being situated in different countries with different resources and similar efficiencies and deficiencies, how come one case was resolved successfully and the other not? Here the answer might lie in how the very snippets of evidence were cross-referenced, noted and visually presented to the investigating officers, prosecution and presiding judge, 
a summary or demonstrative evidence optimally best compiled and produced by a crime and intelligence analyst. What evidence best lends itself to such processing given the sometimes inexact nature of an espionage charge? Luckily here, I have some personal experience to draw on from my own mother's experience of being falsely branded an espionage agent for a neighboring state in 1960s Uganda. 1960s Uganda appears to have been an exciting time. The country was newly independent, well-resourced and staffed by public servants with the right ethos of service alongside the requisite skill. The geopolitical cold war was raging and the world was divided into two hegemonic blocks of influence. You are either for one and against the other or vice versa. Anything in between was suspect. In that mix, anything that didn't conform was period. Paranoia that states were spying upon and undermining one another was rife. Into this mix came my mother, a foreign national from a neighboring state, educated abroad, married to a Ugandan civil servant, and working within the medical unit of the local domestic intelligence service, the General Service Department. How this came about was purely coincidental. The head of that domestic intelligence service was a long-standing family friend of my father's who had been his best man at his wedding too, my mother. This being so, my mother being in the country and seeking a role, one was given to her in keeping with her profession in the medical unit of such service. Politics produces opportunity for some. There are those who recognize it, know how to use it well, ethically. There are those who recognize it and use it badly. And there are those who neither recognize it nor exploit it. In 1960s Uganda, my mother fell victim to a politician and another official who fell squarely in the middle camp. These gentlemen, probably slightly in the doldrums concerning their careers, sought political capital for my family situation. They decided my mother not conforming to their views of African womanhood, that she must be a foreign agent, sent to Uganda for espionage and decided to run with it in the press. A libel lawsuit followed. My reading of parts of that libel file have greatly informed my understanding of counterintelligence investigation methodology in post-colonial Africa circa 1960s. From partial affidavits in the file, I can see that the police special branch at the time, akin to the American FBI, the Russian FSB and the Swedish Bank, was then an all-professional affair staffed with educated, disciplined and well-trained men and women from across all ethnicities. When they came to arrest and question my mother, they took a statement from her, retrieved her work keys, and conducted a search of our house, taking away articles for further scrutiny as evidence. The same largely as what happens these days. A much better exposition of how crime and intelligence analysis might better serve examination of an espionage crime scene, and in relation to other crimes, would be a case study of the John A. Walker Espionage Crime Scene Examination. On the day of the Walker residence search, the following procedure was employed. The officer in charge of the search acquainted himself with the investigative file, noting the nature of the allegation, concealment in plain sight is a hallmark of espionage, as is the miniaturization of objects. For this reason, extreme attention was to be paid to detail. Pre-search overview briefing was given to the search team, 
highlighting the nature of the allegation, the type of suspect, and the type of residence being searched, amongst other things. A separate safety awareness brief was also provided. Espionage suspects and agents might often become desperate characters, if not already so. In this event, care need be taken regarding the possibility of booby traps. On 14th January 2003, British Police Special Branch Officer DS Stephen Robin Oak QGM was killed. Stabbed to death whilst part of a team executing an immigration raid at a home harbour in Kamal Borgas, unbeknownst to them, a terror suspect. The case just goes to highlight the dangers apparent when dealing with a genus of criminal. Care need be taken not only with this type of case, but with counter-terror and uh, other offences including common criminality of the organised variety. On one case I was involved in once in Kampala, an attempt at the recovery of stolen goods and clandestine arrest of a confidence trickster, Comforza, had to be abandoned in the Kiseni slum area of town. When the team I was with entered the area where a suspect was to be found, we very soon discovered that the area had many crisscrossing, very narrow three-foot corridors, where the advantage of numerical strength would soon be lost to the cramped conditions, loss of maneuverability, familiarity both with and in the area. The police team were in plain clothes, and as such, could easily be mistaken for common thugs and viciously attacked by the locals in the area, were they to attempt an arrest. Such attempt could easily be mistaken for criminal intent, and even without household items becoming weapons of opportunity, there were certainly signs of bladed weapons in the vicinity. In the end, the suspect actually walked right past us and even greeted us, unsuspecting of whom we were. In such cases, public or press reaction to an operation needs to be taken into account. Abolish the consequences for law enforcement public image and more importantly, might be viewed as unjust and excessive by potential eyewitnesses who would otherwise have been exceptional sources of intelligence enrichment and witness interview evidence. Rain jackets were issued. These are usually light waterproof jackets, clearly marked as law enforcement, not only designed to protect the wearer's clothes from damage that can be unexpected. Raid jackets were issued. These are usually light waterproof jackets, clearly marked as law enforcement, not only designed to protect the wearer's clothes from damage that can unexpectedly occur during the raid or search, having noxious solids or liquids intentionally or inadvertently thrown over you or on you, but will also act as a clear indicator as to who was on the team and authorised, as opposed to not. In some cases, ski-type goggles and baseball caps might similarly be issued but for purposes of protecting face, hair, eyes, and at times, identity. The Brigade Anti-Gang, the French police at times, go the further step of maintaining the anonymity of street clothes, but issuing search and raid teams with coloured ribbon armbands to be worn on a search or raid, with the colour selected on the day, only about an hour before. Anyone without such armband is clearly marked out as not part of the team, and treated accordingly. Conducting scene of crime investigation for espionage must not only address the tangible evidence, but it must also encompass the intangible too. 
These are the thoughts someone had in their head. The utterances they made and the shortwave broadcast they listened to, even if they've disappeared into the ether. This creates a vast terrain to be searched, usually at the suspect's place of work, home, and any place frequented for leisure. Search teams must be formed and broken up with this in mind. Either we'll have to be very organized and meticulous, have a lot of manpower, or probably both. Wherever it's being searched, whomsoever is in attendance, needs to be signed in and no one can be admitted absent signing in. Correct name and proper identification indicating the department. No exceptions. The integrity of the search area and chain of custody need be maintained. Within each search area, subdivisions need to be clearly identified and relevant search teams assigned. Let there be no area which becomes a lacuna, overlooked in the bureaucracy. It is at this stage that the utility of analytical techniques becomes evident. As subdivisions are allocated, a table or some other means of representation need be drawn up to capture the subdivisions at which any evidence was retrieved, by whom, at what time, and how it was treated. For those with a records management background, something akin to a records management data disposal schedule should result, except this would list describe, locate and serialize evidence setting out its chain of custody, which is very important for later admissibility. For thoroughness of search, each subdivision will be further partitioned into sectors, allowing for search in each sector by the number of persons assigned to that subdivision. An example of this would be a bedroom assigned to a team of four, would be further subdivided into four sectors search of that room not being complete until each of the team present has searched each of the sectors of that room and this fact and any resulting fines or comments has been noted in table. Clearly this is a time and labour intensive activity but it is worth noting given its propensity for a lengthy or death sentence in many jurisdictions upon conviction, espionage is a very serious offence. It need be treated accordingly such that if there is evidence of its commission, this is found, and if not, the same. Knowledge of the statement made becomes more evident when you consider that the John A. Walker espionage case recommended that search teams be rotated around each subdivisions, such that each team has searched where the other has to. During, doing this negates the risk of lax or compromised search teams. It also generates a lot of data to be accurately captured. This is why primary intelligence analysis, probably by use of Excel, Access, or other such similar database, becomes an essential recommended tool and technique. In the Walker case, search teams were issued with white cotton gloves to prevent contamination of the crime scene, and even toilets were disassembled to be searched. Presumably, all can appreciate why such precautions are taken, particularly when noting that espionage paraphernalia can include items of such small dimensions as microdots. Ordinarily, unremarkable items such as scraps of paper, newspapers, magazines or photographs take on new significance when one becomes alert to steganography or the practice of concealment of one thing or another. 
most visible, most visible in word search puzzles. Adding digitization and security in, now concealment practice has been elevated to the level of fine art. Hiding in plain sight has never been more sophisticated. The highest level of skill and organization are really necessary to counter it. Repeated searches by different staff revealed previously missed crucial evidence. Even personnel records and credit card receipts proved to be critical. The latter only once put through an analytical technique of mapping out the locations where charges were run up against the timeline, thereby providing a link to co-conspirators and the former, giving up a target list of actual potential personnel to be observed for vulnerabilities, compromise where possible, and recruited as espionage agents. In this instance, even a portable x-ray machine made an appearance. All said, joining Walker Crimes and Examination and wider espionage investigation yielded results, convictions were obtained, and long sentences were issued. Success in that case looks like a byproduct of systemization and influence on the investigative frame of mind before attending the crime scene, thoroughness, acuity of detail, and a methodological approach once at the crime scene, and order of facts and evidence, and superior presentation of the same as summary and demonstrative evidence after leaving the crime scene. There is nothing to say that if the Wen Ho Lee case, or that of Stephen Kisembo, or even the trial by media and insinuation of my own mother, had been handled with this level of diligence, attention to detail and application of technique, the results in those cases might have been quite different. All the preceding are probably the best techniques, methods, levels of applications that applied assiduously can make a difference and benefit crime scenes in general when coupled up with the techniques and products of criminal intelligence analysis. In closing, you have promised tips on how best the techniques that were just set out and the lessons obtained in analysis of evidence from the John A. Walker espionage crime scene could positively impact high street retail store thefts. Well, the benefits of Walker and those techniques can best be felt by implementing the following protocols. Understand the patrol men and patrol women, crime scene investigators and scene of crime officers usually know about the crime and crime scene long before crime and intelligence analysts come into the picture. There are some things they need to know from crime and intelligence analysts long before the crime is committed, or before even the crime scene becomes one. They have to know what mindset or frame of mind is most useful to analysts at a later stage when exercised at that point. Crime and intelligence analysts need to be reaching out to their colleagues in these fields, as well as retail loss prevention officers and investigators, CCTV operators, warehouse guards, department store security managers, mom and pop store owners and association for retail loss prevention. In whatever regular communication crime and intelligence analysts produce amongst themselves, write something directed to those categories of professionals, share with them, tell them to have large working clocks placed prominently on shop floors so that when an incident occurs, there's unity of facts regarding the time it occurred. Do the same for doors with door height markers. Teach them to teach others simple acronyms like shape, sex, height, age, and physique. To capture basic subject, to capture basic suspect descriptors. 
insist that they insist that standardized hardback incident books are available on site and regularly used to record incidents and suspicious activity. What is recorded on Monday, suspicious but probably nothing, might become critical of everything on Saturday. Let the incident book record entries sequentially by time. These entries can go on to inform timeline charts later on. Have large, accurate, well-labeled maps of the local surrounding area, at least one that maps, at least ones that map out all access routes, obstacles, key buildings, and possible hideout areas. Let them know where CCTV cameras are and where blind spots are too. As for accidents, encourage mobile phone footage of crime in progress, but carefully. Promote counter pains. For store owners and managers in an area, encourage regular formal meetings to share information about suspected burglars, pickpockets, bilkers, shoplifters, armed robbers, other thieves, counterfeit salespeople, and confidence tricksters. You can add habitual drunks, rapists, kidnappers, sexual perverts, car thieves, violent hooligans and terrorists to that list too, and no harm is done. Know who they are in your neighbourhood, how they look, how they operate, and if possible where they live. The meetings need not be face-to-face. -face. Virtual meetings and WhatsApp bulletins are all the rage these days. Care must be taken to steer clear of library blood and try to have at least one police officer on board if not an analyst too. Taking these steps might appear small and insignificant, but then again, so does an ant, and that can lift up to 5,000 times its own body weight. These steps are the little baby steps we take as we head on to better use of crime and intelligence analysis resources in working crime scenes, particularly espionage ones, improving retail loss prevention, and getting to better situational crime prevention but which more will be said next time. This has been a podcast hosted by me, Manuel James Hoteng, on behalf of the Association of Crime and Intelligence Analysts and Law Enforcement Analysts podcasts on crimes with the paucity of readily, av readily available evidence, crime scenes, and suggestions to better counter retail loss prevention using crime and intelligence analysis, principles and techniques anywhere, including Africa. As usual, I hope you've been educated, engaged and entertained. I look forward to our next podcast in this continuing series of podcasts. Thank you one and thank you all. And let me say finally, my mother was not a spy.